to the redemption that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, as we just sang it, uh, Lord, we have thanksgiving in our hearts. Uh, the fact that we are no longer in opposition to you, we are no longer your enemies, and that we have been given a seat at your table, and that we are counted as your friends, that we have been brought closer than a brother to you. So we're thankful for that this morning, Lord. Um, we thank you that as we confess our sins, we can be confident that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins on the basis of your son's death. And as we're going to see in the text this morning, it's, it's the reason we rejoice that our salvation has been secured, as we're going to see in the text this morning, that uh, the Father and the Son are working together for our salvation. And uh, Father, I pray that as we leave here today, that our, uh, our truest source of joy would be uh, the salvation that we have and the fact that our names are recorded in the book of life. We love you, Lord. Help me to preach this text faithfully and help us to listen faithfully. And we know your spirit will be faithful to us, Lord, if we would be surrendered to him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke 10, if you have a Bible, you can open uh, up to verse 17 of Luke 10, picking up right where we left off a week ago. Jesus sent out 70 followers, remember? They go ahead of him to prepare the way to Jerusalem, and they go on a dangerous mission. They're like sheep. Uh, going out in the middle of a bunch of wolves, and they're totally reliant upon the Lord uh, to the point that they don't even have shoes on their feet. They don't even have uh, a bag. They don't even have money, uh, and they don't even know where they're going to sleep. So they urgently go out preaching the message, and then as they uh, would get to a city or village, they would look for the man of peace, Look for someone who would receive the peace that they bring as an ambassador of Christ. And uh, if the man of peace lets them in, then that's where they set up shop. And they would stay and presumably they would preach the gospel and and teach the gospel and disciple uh, the people that they uh, go into the house with. And uh, on the other hand, if anybody rejected them, they would warn them that in rejecting them, they're really rejecting the one who sent them in his message, which is Christ, and that by rejecting Christ, Christ and his messengers, they're making their town, their village, a foreign place to God. Uh, so they warned them of those things. This morning, we see them come back. I don't know if you've ever gone on a mission trip or seen people come back from a mission trip, and they come and they, they report to the local church, right? They'll tell stories about what happened on the mission field, what they saw, what God is doing. It's it's a joyful thing. Well, it's the same thing this morning, except instead of reporting to the local church, they're reporting to Jesus himself, and they're saying, here's what happened out there, Jesus, and we see Jesus responding to that, and this is a joyful passage, okay? Joy is our word of the morning. Uh, Remember, it was like Sesame Street, there'd be the word of the day, okay? Joy is the word of the day. You don't need to cheer every time we say it or anything like that, but it is the word of the day for us to remember. And we see joy uh, in the followers of Christ. We see Jesus divert that joy and say, well, actually, you ought to be joyful uh, in something other than what you're being joyful in. And then we see the joy of Christ over a few things this morning. There's joy all over the place in this passage. Uh, So let's read here. Luke 10, I'll read in verse 17. The 70 returned with joy. So there it is, right off the bat. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see, and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear, and did not hear them. So we start with the joy of the 70. They come back with joy, Luke says in verse 17, right? They're joyful over the fact that as they come in the name of Christ, even the demons are, uh, are, are bowing down, right? The demons are subject to them because they come in the name of Christ and in the authority of Christ. Remember back in Luke 9, when Jesus sent out the apostles, he gave them authority to cast out demons. And later in Luke 9, as Jesus and James and John and Peter come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, remember they got down to the bottom and there was uh, a man whose son had a demon in him and he's saying, uh, you know, your disciples tried to cast out the demon and they couldn't do it. And Jesus reveals that it was their lack of faith. That's why they couldn't cast out the demon. That doesn't seem to be like an issue uh, here. The, The 70, they are reporting that they cast out demons with great success which tells us they went on their mission. They had faith in God, and God used them in a mighty way. Now, you expect then that Jesus would kind of give them an attaboy and slap them on the back, but instead he says something really weird. He responds to this by saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which is probably not the way you and I would have responded, right? But that is how Jesus responds. What does he mean by this? Some say that he is actually saying he saw Satan defeated as the 70 went out and did this work. I don't think that quite hits the nail on the head because when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, uh, it's, it's him alluding to some verses from Isaiah 14. So if you go to Isaiah 14, here is what the prophet records. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is one of those Old Testament passages that has a double meaning, okay? On one hand, this is about the king of Babylon. In its context, it's about the king of Babylon who tried to ascend above God and uh, God is going to cut him down. On the other hand, Jesus, in referring to it here, applies it to Satan, which tells us it's also about Satan. And the reason he quotes it is because he's saying to his disciples, don't be so surprised that you saw Satan cast out, that you saw the forces of Satan cast out, that they were subject to 
to you as you went out in my name. Don't be so surprised because I saw Satan by the power and the authority of God cast out of heaven. So don't be so shocked that you see him cast out on earth by the power and by the authority of God. Don't be so surprised because I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing's going to injure you, right? This is what he tells him in verse 19. Serpents and scorpions are figurative terms for the demons, for Satan's forces. Christ has empowered them to step on the forces of the enemy by the same authority that cast Satan out of heaven. And it's a little preview here of what's to come in the end. Right? You know when you go to the movies and you see all the previews, right? There's like 25 minutes of previews. And my wife and I will sit and watch and we tend to be like, oh, that looks good. Or, you know, two thumbs down. Not going to see that. Or, you know, you wait for that to stream on something and then, and then we watch it, right? This is a preview here and it's a preview you definitely want to see and be a part of. Because at the end of time as we know it, when, as Tim Keller puts it, all bad things will come untrue. Satan will be crushed under the feet of Christ's church. Romans 16 verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And so as the 70 go out and they cast out demons in the name of Christ, it's like a little preview of what's to come in the end. And yet, Jesus says that this should not be the disciples' primary source of joy. You might think it would be. I I don't know about you. I hate Satan. I hate the devil. Right? He's a liar. He is a thief. He is a murderer. He hates everything that we love as believers in Christ. I long for the day when he will be vanquished for good. So the idea that we could get to play a part, that these disciples could play a part in hurting his kingdom of darkness seems like it might be a good reason to have joy. And it's not a bad reason to have joy, but it shouldn't be the main reason they have joy. So Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Satan was cast out of heaven, but your names are recorded in heaven And so he's looking at them and he's saying, do you know what's better than defeating the forces of hell on earth? It's having your reward secured in heaven. And so that's our first source of joy this morning, our first rejoicing that we see in this text. Followers of Christ should rejoice that their names are written in heaven. The New Testament gives us a handful of verses about the names of believers being recorded in heaven. In Philippians 4.3, Paul says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And then in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then you get to Revelation 21 and verse 27. It says, And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, talking about heaven, but only those names who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so if you're a believer, your name has been sovereignly and eternally written 
in the Lamb's book of life. Your name. You. Not just the church in general. But you specifically, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ and have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life this morning. There are billions of fallen people on the planet, and by the pure grace of God, He personally recorded your name in glory. He has personally seen to it that your citizenship is in heaven. And there is nothing that Satan and his forces can do to overpower the authorship of God in your salvation. And so we rejoice in that. We rejoice not only that our names are written in the book of life, but that every time there is a name in the book of life, it represents a victory over Satan. Your name in the book of life represents a victory over Satan because Satan would love to take your soul and condemn it to hell forever, right? He would love to have your soul locked away with him there in, uh, for, for eternity, in eternal punishment. That's what he would love. But every time a name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that's one less soul that will be in hell. And that's one more defeat for the kingdom of darkness. So let's keep going in verse 21. He tells them what to rejoice in, and then Luke says, at that very time he rejoiced. This is, this is a, a, a sneaky, great Bible verse, okay? If you ask people what their favorite Bible verse is, most people will not say Luke 10, verse 21, okay? That would be very random, and yet this is an awesome Bible verse. Number one, because it's the only time in the New Testament where we're told that Jesus is verbally rejoicing. We know that he rejoiced in other places. We know he spent his entire life walking in the joy of the Lord. Uh, But this is the only time we're told about him doing it. So I love that. I also love this verse because the Trinity is in it. So sometimes people who want to doubt the faith might say to you, well, the doctrine of the Trinity is not even in the Bible. The word Trinity, they're correct, is not in the Bible. That doesn't mean the Trinity is not in the Bible. Trinity is just a word that the early church came up with to try to understand what they're seeing in the text. This is a verse where the Trinity is there. So the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is rejoicing in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And in his joy, the Son of God is praising the first person of the Trinity, the Father. So there it is, all right? So anytime somebody comes to you and says the Trinity is not in the Bible, you should say, well, you haven't read Luke 10, 21, we ought to do that together now so I can show you that it's, it's all there. The Son rejoices in the Spirit, and the Son in His rejoicing is praising the Father. It's pretty good stuff. So as Jesus rejoices, there's three specific things He rejoices in. And the first one is this. He rejoices in the sovereign plan of the Father. Before I go any further... I just want to say that this is tough stuff that we're about to tread on. All right, what we're about to unpack here is difficult. They tell you about Romans 9 in seminary. They tell you about Hebrews 6. They tell you about Ephesians 1, difficult passages to preach. They don't say anything about Luke 10. But Luke 10 is tough. Okay, so I'd like to think we all put our thinking caps on every Sunday when we walk in here. But let's get our mind uh, off of the... Uh, weekend we're, we're enjoying and the remembering we're doing, Memorial Day weekend, and whatever we may eat with people that we love tomorrow, and let's think real hard about what's being said here, because it's awesome stuff, 
but there is some heavy lifting. People have been trying to deal with these issues we're going to talk about this morning for 2,000 years of church history. I will not pretend that I can fix it all for you in the next 15 minutes, okay? But I hope that I can push us down the road of understanding quite a bit. So here we go. He praises his Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, because the Father has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and has revealed them to infants. What are these things? What are these things that have been hidden? It's the things of salvation. Right? He's just talked about what? Salvation. He's just talked about names being recorded in heaven. And so right after he says that, he says that he praises his Father, that he has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and has revealed them to infants. So he's talking about salvation. He's praising the Father that the Father has hidden the knowledge of salvation from the wise and intelligent, and he has revealed it to infants. And why is the Father doing this? Why is God revealing salvation to some and not others, and why is Jesus praising him for that? Well, let's start by saying this. The Lord has revealed himself to everybody in a general sense. The book of Romans tells us that his divine attributes can clearly be seen in creation. It takes a child's logic to do that. Right? A child, probably by the age of two and a half, three years old, could walk outside, could look and say, there's an earth, there's got to be an earth maker. Right? They don't play with their toys and think that magically plastic came together and uh, little rods of of aluminum, and that's how their toys are made, that it all just happened by happenstance. They know, like, somebody made this thing, right? Fisher-Price made this thing. It takes a child's logic to understand. If there's a toy, there's a toy maker. Well, the earth is much more complex than, uh, you know, the little vacuum thing you push with the balls that pop inside of it, right? It's a lot more complex than a child's toy. So if there's an earth, there's got to be an earth maker. A child can understand that. So God has revealed himself generally to everyone in that sense, but what Jesus is saying is that God has not revealed himself to everyone in another sense and talking about salvation. He's revealed it only to some, which means he's concealed it to others. To the wise and the intelligent, it's concealed. To infants, it's revealed. When he says infants there, of course, he's not talking about actual infants. He's talking figuratively. He's praising the Father that the Father's plan to save is not based on the standards of the world. It's not based on degrees hanging on walls and money stacked up in bank accounts and knowledge that fills the brain. It's not set up for people who are wise in their own eyes. Who think that they've gained so much knowledge they don't even need revelation from the Lord. This is a direct shot at the religious elite of his day. The scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the lawyers. They all thought they could come to know God through their own wisdom, through their own intellectual prowess. And in reality, professing themselves to be wise, as Paul says in Romans 1.22, they became fools. Instead, God has planned to reveal salvation to those who are humbled and have a childlike faith. Infants, here's here's why he uses the word infants here. Infants have no achievements. They don't have any education. They don't have any impressive intelligence. They don't have any exposure to the world. They don't bring a whole lot to the table. Like in my house, 
we have responsibilities that are divided up. There are things that must be done. Bills have to get paid. Food has to be put on the table. Dishes have to be washed. Dog has to be fed so the dog doesn't die. These are things that have to happen. And as we divide those responsibilities up, I get a large share of them. Katie gets a large share of them. The seven-year-old and the nine-year-old, they can't really pay the bills, but they can make sure the dog doesn't die. They can, they can help out with the dishes, right? But when it comes to my two-year-old daughter, you know, she's not doing much. Cuteness is what she brings to the table. Cuteness does not pay the bills, right? You can't pay dominion power in cuteness. I wish you could because I'd be rich, okay? But you can't do it. So she's not bringing a lot to the table. And that's how we come to God. We come to him recognizing that we don't bring anything to the table. We, we have no wisdom and intelligence that we can merit our salvation. We have no resume to offer him that would merit his love. We come to him with empty hands and surrender. That's what we come to him with. My daughter is not even actually a great example here because the Greek word for infant is napios and it means nursing baby. So it's even younger than her. And that's a picture of true, real dependence that Jesus wants us to have here. The sort of posture before God where we are surrendered, where we recognize that we offer nothing, that is the posture where real faith begins. Some people are offended at this idea. Not at the idea of childlike dependence, but at the idea that God would choose to reveal salvation to some and not others. And that Jesus would praise the Father for that. The idea that he would elect some to saving knowledge and not others. In our minds, it may not seem fair. First time I ever learned about the doctrine of election, that's exactly what I said. Because we feel God is obligated to save everybody, but in reality, he's not obligated to save a single one. It's his choice and his covenant to save. From the fall, everybody's born in sin. That sin is an offense to God. That sin puts us in danger of judgment. And here's the other thing about that sin. That sin steals away real free will. Because that sin confines you to really only be free within your sin nature. I always use this example that in the movie Free Willy, it's a spoiler alert. If you don't know what happened by now, I'm sorry, okay? Willie gets freed. He's not free to move to Wyoming and become a cattle rancher. He's only free within his nature. He's still a whale, right? He's still just going to stay in the ocean. People who are dead in sin remain dead in sin unless someone gives them life. And so we are only free within our sin nature. So if left to our own devices, all we're ever going to do is choose sin. Even when we choose to do good things, it will be rooted in sin and pride, which is why the Bible says that our righteousness is filthy rags before him. So we are locked into sin nature unless God does something. And what Jesus is saying here is that the Father has chosen to give life to some, and he wrote their names in the book of life. They're recorded in heaven. Revelation 13.8 says it this way, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Everybody will worship the beast and the false prophet and the dragon unless their names are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. 
as before time. And God did not look down the hallways of time and say, well, I know who will be wise and intelligent and, and they will reject me and I know who will be like an infant and they will receive me and I'll base my choice on the one who will say yes to me. Because if he does that, his choice is based on your choice and that's not grace. In order for it to be grace, it has to be a free choice of God, an unconditional choice of God. And what that means is the only way somebody will be like an infant if God makes their heart alive and humbles them so they might receive him by faith and be saved. Only then are they truly free to follow him. So who's he humbling? Those whose names are written in heaven. And so if God has made you alive and he has granted you a childlike faith, your response should be to fall down on your knees and thank him every day for choosing you. Why did he choose you and not somebody else? Why did he open your eyes and ears? Why did he humble your heart? Why did he see to it that you were raised in a Christian home or that person shared the gospel with you? Why did he give you a delight in the things of salvation? Because he chose you. He chose to love you. That's the answer. And it should lead you to have an awe-filled praise of his sovereign name. Why does it please God to operate in this way? Because that's what Jesus says here. Right? Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Well, Paul gives us that answer in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So he is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. He saves in his own power. He saves those who confess their lack of power. And he does it this way. His plan works in this way so that he gets all of the glory. And that's what Jesus is rejoicing in. He rejoices in the fact that the Father's plan of salvation causes humans to be humbled so nobody can take credit for it because you know we would if we could. And God gets all the praise and all the adoration for his saving work. Let's keep going because this builds on this. And then I'm going to try to give you a pillow, because I know this is hard. And I need a pillow too. Christ rejoices here, his second rejoicing. So he rejoices over the sovereign plan of the Father. Then in verse 22, he rejoices over the supreme authority of the Son. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the, who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So here's what we've got because it seems confusing, but it's, it's actually pretty simple. Only the Father knows the Son, and only the Son truly knows the Father. You know what that means? Only God knows God. You're like, well, where am I at in the equation? In our natural state, you're not in it. Because of what happened in the garden, only God knows God. In our sin, we can never know the Father the way that the Son does. In our sin... We can never know the Son the way that the Father does. We have to be rescued from our sin nature, freed from that confining sin nature that keeps us imprisoned to sin if we're going to know God. Only God knows God. If we're to know Him, He must be revealed. 
So again, you see, our salvation is totally based on the work of God. Unless he does something based on his own choice, we're not going to know him. But praise God that the Father here has given the Son authority to reveal the Father to those whose names are written in the book of life. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus speaks to the disciples and says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Authority over all things. And that includes the Father's plan of redemption. So Jesus is rejoicing here that the Father trusts the Son so much that He hands the working out of His plan of salvation to Him completely. He gives Jesus all the names written in the book of life and He trusts the Son to save them. He trusts the Son to reveal them to the Father. At the Last Supper, John says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come forth from God and was going back to God. It's the same idea from Luke 10. Jesus doesn't have to convince the Father of anything. It's not like the Father is like, well, you know, that Ben Little, I just want to crush him. And Jesus is like, no, please don't do that. I really like him. And the father's like, all right. That's not the way it is. He's not trying to talk the father into saving anyone. He's also, the father's not trying to dominate Jesus into submitting to him. They're in perfect harmony together in the plan to save. They are in perfect agreement together in the plan to save. And the father has a sovereign purpose, and the son has the authority to bring that sovereign purpose to pass. I know this business about election, about the Son revealing some to the Father, is hard. And if you struggle with it this morning, my encouragement to you would be pursue that thread and study it. Study the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. But I also want to show you a bit of a balance because I know it's tough stuff and the Bible offers us a balance. So go to Matthew 11, and we'll have it on the screen. But in Matthew 11, it says, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Does that sound familiar? Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Parallel text to Luke 10, word for word. Matthew and Luke are recording the same moment, the same teaching. But Matthew gives us a little more teaching that Luke does not record. So the next verse, verse 28, here's what Jesus says right after this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So right after this, right after this business about names being recorded in heaven, and the Father Revealing salvation to some, concealing it to others, and the Son revealing some to the Father. There's an invitation for all to come to Him if they are weary and heavy laden. Our little finite peanut minds, they can get all caught up in, well, who has God chosen and who has He not chosen? Whose name's written in the book of life and whose isn't? 
And that's not really for you. And that's not for me. Praise the Lord that we don't do the electing. We can read the Bible, understand our salvation, try to understand how God works in election. That's what I just encourage you to do. But listen, here's the bottom line. If you are here today and you are weary, come to Him. That's the business you really need to be concerned about. If you don't know Jesus, don't worry too much about the doctrine of election right now. Worry about the doctrine of repentance. Turn from your sin to Christ in faith. If you're a Christian, you say, well, I don't know who to share the gospel with. I don't know who God has chosen. Then share the gospel with everybody. Because you never know who is ready to repent. You never know whose name is recorded in the book of life. If there's breath in your lungs, there's an invitation for your soul. The supreme authority, Jesus, does the revealing. And who are we to say he's not revealing the Father to you today? He extends his hand to your heavy laden heart. Repent of your sin and humble yourself and come to him in faith, trusting him and forsaking every other plan of salvation. Final verses this morning. Verses 23 and 24. So Christ rejoices in the sovereign plan of the Father. He rejoices in the supreme authority of the Son. And then he rejoices in the seeing and the hearing of the disciples. He says, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. Many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things you hear and did not hear them. Kind of reminds me of 1 Peter 1, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the prophets... And the kings of the Old Testament and the angels of heaven long to look into the things of salvation. Long to look into uh, the revealing of the Messiah Jesus and His death on the cross and His resurrection from the empty grave. His plan to redeem. The unfolding of God's plan of salvation. The unfolding of the Father's sovereign plan that the Son is carrying out. They long to look into those things. Just think of Abraham, left his father's land in Genesis 12. He doesn't know where he's going, right? He's going based on faith that his family will become massive because God told him it would, that the whole world would be blessed through his family because God told him it would, and he goes searching for a land that God promised to him. So here's what Hebrews 11 says about old Abraham. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was looking for the city of promise, but Abraham lived in the foreign land like a refugee, or in the promised land like a refugee. He lived in the promised land like a foreigner. He lived in tents and ended up in a grave. And so Abraham, like all the other Old Testament saints, died in faith, looking to the horizon, longing to see the promises of God come to fruition. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you see what Abraham longed to see. 
They wanted to see the king of the kingdom, but the king of the kingdom is standing right in front of you. The one that all the promises of God find their yes in is standing right in front of you. And Jesus is rejoicing in this. That this 70 are seeing and hearing the things Old Testament believers and angels long to look into. And this morning you sit with your Bible completed. Genesis to Revelation, the canon is closed, it's the complete revelation of God, and you look into the things that angels and Abraham longed to look into. So let me ask you this as we close up then, where is your joy today? What are you rejoicing in this morning? Is it your health? Some of you are like, no, no, it's not that. How about your bank account? Even more of you are like, no, it's not the bank account. Is it your kids? Because you can do that, right? Can't, can't our kids become our main source of joy? They become the center of the household and they think that the whole universe revolves around them. Then they grow up and think that they should be the main source of everybody's joy and that the whole universe should revolve around them and they become terrible coworkers and terrible neighbors. We can do that as parents. What's the main source of your joy? On the flip side, from the time my dad became a Christian, he has often said to me, don't let Satan steal your joy. So what have you allowed to steal your joy? Is it your health? See, I flipped it around on you. Right before, you're like, no, it's not my health. But your health might be stealing your joy, right? Your health's failing, and you're letting it rob you of joy. Or maybe it's minimal numbers in your bank account that concern you greatly, and it's robbing you of your joy. Or maybe it's your kids. The very things we can make idols out of can also make us miserable and hold us back from worship. So we got to heed the words of Christ this morning, and we have to find our joy primarily in the fact that our names are written in heaven. We don't have to be like greedy children. I, I, my, my in-laws have a, a new pool, and I was there this weekend, and I was watching my kids and the nieces and nephews all playing in the pool. And, and you know when there's like a toy that doesn't have a whole lot of meaning, but you put it in a room full of kids, and suddenly it's a hot commodity? You know what I mean? If one kid loves a cardboard box, they all want the cardboard box. So it was like this little orca that you throw in the water. And everybody wanted the orca. They're all fighting over it. And as soon as they got it, you could just see they were like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. You could see their eyes just fill with greed. My precious, you know. They didn't want anybody to take it from them. We don't have to be that way with our salvation. You don't have to hold it close and think, well, somebody's going somebody's to steal this from me. Nobody takes an eraser to the Lamb's book of life. Nobody steals from the hand of Jesus. He has freely given you salvation and he is seeing to it that the work God began in you is being brought to completion. So rejoice that your name is written in the book of life and rejoice that the Father has a sovereign plan and that the Son is authoritatively carrying out that plan and it's been revealed to you. Abraham longed to see it and you see it this morning. So when we look around the world, we should be the last ones to despair. Yeah, the world's changing. 
changing all around us. And yes, Christian opinion and Christian worldview is becoming more and more hard to find. It's becoming more and more scarce. Don't despair in that. Because you have the joy of knowing your name's written in heaven. God's sovereign plan has seen to it. The Son is carrying the plan out. And you don't have to guess about it. Because you've got his word. And you can look into it. We should be the most joyful people in the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the things that Jesus rejoices in this morning. We rejoice in the same things. We don't pretend to understand your sovereign plan fully. We have theological frameworks that we try to use to understand the Bible. But ultimately, when we're talking about some of these things, they're too great for us, and we study them to the best of our ability, but ultimately we trust in your plan. We trust that you're working together all things for the good of those who love you and who are called by you. We thank you that your son volunteered to come and carry out the plan to die at Calvary on the cross and to take every bit of the wrath that I deserve for my sin and that we deserve for our sin. And he absorbed it. He took the punishment for us. And then he rose from the grave to proclaim victory over sin and death and to show that he has truly all authority and that he is the Son of God. And I thank you, Lord, that you have revealed this plan to us something that Abraham and Moses and Elijah, that Nahum and Obadiah would just have longed to, to see and fully understand. We stand on this side of the cross and we look at the jewel of the gospel this morning. We behold its glory and we know it's your glory. And so we give you praise. And our hearts should be flooded with joy, and I pray they are. That even as we sing this last song, that we would sing it with more exuberance than we did before the sermon. Because we're standing here this morning having learned from your word the great joy that we should have. So let us express it right now. Let us sing loud. Let us shake the walls of this place with our voices. Let the people who are worshiping with us from at home sing right in their living rooms boldly. Shake the walls of their houses with their voices. Because we are people who have had this plan revealed to us. And for some reason, by your grace, you have chosen to love us. And it's for your glory. That's the reason. So we turn to praise you now, Lord. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.